0: Conversations on Race is a podcast that celebrates the inspirational voices of those who are on a journey of self discovery through dialogue, scholarly research, and education.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Conversations on Race with Patty Maria McGee. I am your host today. I want to introduce you to our Girl Power team, starting with our sound support, our audio technician, Ms. Sharon Wright. Our co hosts this morning are Dr. Margaret. Norris, educator and author out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Nicole Mubira, author, speaker, and UN ambassador. She's located in Wilmington, Delaware. And I'd like to introduce you to our guest today, Miss Caroline Clark. She is an author and she is a very amazing person with an incredible life story to talk to you about today. So first of all, I would like to have my co-host say good morning, and uh, then we'll get started with
2: Ms. Clark. Well, good morning, everyone, and it's wonderful to be with you. We are really honored and privileged to have uh, you, Caroline Clark, as our uh, guest this morning, and we're looking forward to going through your journey this morning, so thank you glad to be with you. And
3: good morning, everyone. This is Noel Mubaira. Happy to be here helping the co-host. I happened to receive your TED Talk, um, Dr. Clark, and was very inspired. And I am excited about what we are embarking on today and how uh, it will help others to be grounded in who they are. So thank you for your your work so far. Looking forward to today's
4: talk. Thank you, thank you all so much. Thrilled to be here. All right,
1: and with that, Caroline, uh, go ahead and tell our audience uh, your story.
4: So my story is, uh, you know, I think like all of our stories and unlike all of our stories. Um, I've been a journalist for uh, a long time and I became a journalist because I was drawn to, to this, right? To who we are um, as individuals. Everybody has a story to tell. Um, and mine is unique, but all of ours are unique. Um, mine begins with adoption, which, which, which is common, but is still rare in the black community compared to others, right? We do not relinquish children easily. This is not something that um, we do to this day um at the same rate or with the same openness as some other cultures do because of our history of having children ripped away from us. And I think it's such a, um, it's such a strong marker for how the traumas of our ancestors are imprinted upon our DNA, right? Because um, even in 2022 the um, Adoption and the relinquishment of children beyond the family is tough for us. We absorb children into the family and maybe you know shift them around grandchild grandparents raising grandchildren. Um, you know you find out when you 're an adult that who you thought was your sister is really your aunt and so forth. but we rarely allow children to to um, be positioned beyond their biological family. I was given up for adoption. Um, grew up in the most wonderful home ever, very blessed that way, had wonderful parents, um, and found out when I was seven that I was adopted. So this doesn't happen today. Um, Today, children are supposed to sort of always know they're adopted. There's not supposed to be this before and after reality, which can be so jarring. But my mother sat me down when I was seven and told me I was adopted, and it did throw me completely. Um, I loved my family, they were all I knew. And to be told that I was not born into this family, um, that these were not biologically my people um, that I had some other mother somewhere was um, was difficult you know I remember that moment very very clearly but I think that you know children are more resilient than we ever give them credit for and you adapt and you move on and that's what I did um, and I didn't search for my biological family. I really was very fortunate, felt very blessed. I think knowing that I was adopted made me feel extra blessed because when you're aware that you could have had some other reality somewhere, you assume that you bypassed some situation that probably paled in comparison to what you got. And so, you know, I just felt very fortunate to feel the family that I had um I had a sense of belonging. My parents and my extended family, which was large, did everything you know, as right as as families can. and uh, and I was content. But um, at the age of thirty seven, I did go back to my adoption agency to get medical information because I had some um, mysterious um, ailment that had not been able to be diagnosed. Um, lots of joint pains and things like that, that wasn't threatening my life, but that I just couldn't get a handle on and didn't know if it was genetically related or not. I had young children and I was frustrated with not ever having a medical history and not knowing now what I was passing on to my children. So I went to the Spence Chapin Adoption Agency in Manhattan in New York to get that. I knew that by law, that was all they could give me anyway. And I didn't expect much So I go in and um, a social worker who happened to be a black woman has this whole little report. She shakes this little pile of papers in front of me. And I am, my mind is blown because I I really, you know, how much are they gonna tell you about your medical history? I knew my mother was very young. She left that place, she could have been hit by a car. The minute she walked out of the door, who was gonna call the adoption agency, right? So she went on and had some health issues, who was gonna call the adoption agency. Um, I kind of did this on a lark and didn't expect a lot. And this woman now had all of this information typed on a few pages and she made me sit and listen to her. And as I listened, um, she gave me the first physical description I've ever had of my biological mother. She told me what she majored in in college, which was the same thing I majored in. She told me she went to an all women's college which I did, Um, there were all of these details that showed these commonalities with this woman I'd never known, Um, and differences. And one of the most stark differences was as she read on about the family my biological mother was raised in, it was very clear that this family was wealthy. I'm not like, you know, this is not like the Jeffersons moving on up wealthy. (laughs) This is like wealthy people, right? She's talking about debutante balls and maids and nannies and chauffeurs and world travel. And my mind is spinning because whatever I assumed I was born into, it was certainly not that. And one of the reasons is, you know, if I was born into wealth, why then did these people give me away? Right. And so in that moment, um, it was a searing moment, because I, I I was told always that my biological mother loved me. And she loved me so much that she gave me away because she wanted me to have a better life than what she could give me. Um, now, even at 37, I, I was very clear that better life doesn't necessarily mean material things, but this just did not make sense, right? It just didn't make sense. And so um, it was a really daunting moment. Um, As a journalist, I walked out of that place and I started clicking through those details in my mind. And I thought right away, I can go to Ebony Magazine's archives and find out who these people are. There's not that many wealthy, wealthy people in the mid '60s in the United States of America, and and whoever they were, they would have been in Ebony Max, scene, right? So um, <laughs> I worked at Black Enterprise. I knew people at Ebony cold and could just pick up the phone. Um, so that wasn't going to be difficult. But you know, as I drove, I really got fixated on this family um, that was described in great detail at the time I was born. These parents who, you know, it was murky description, but I I assumed there were an entertainment somehow based on the level of wealth, based on the things they said. Um, There was this firstborn daughter, my my biological mother, um, who was adopted, interestingly enough, within that family. Um, It was actually her aunt who was raising her because she'd been orphaned at the age of three. She had a younger sister who was biological to those people. It said she was musically gifted. Um, She had an adopted brother. And then there were twins who were just three at the time of my birth. And there were 18 years between these twins and my mother, the firstborn. So this was a unique family, right? They're Black, they're wealthy. Um, They have five children, one of whom is adopted within the family, one of whom is adopted straight, and this big differential in age between the oldest and the youngest who are twins. So I'm like, okay, this is not gonna be a hard family to find, and within a few seconds, I knew. I knew who this family was, and I knew because one of those twins, um, who were three at the time I was born, had been a dear friend of mine since college, Um, and her name is Timeline Cole, and she was one of the youngest two children of Nat King Cole. And her oldest sister was my biological mother. Um, so, you know, it, it was an extraordinary moment. And, um, and the book, uh, which, you know, Cookie's over here looking over my shoulder. This book, Postcards from Cookie, um, was a memoir that um, recounts that that whole thing and my life with my parents who raised me and my coming to know Cookie and um, and the rest of the Cole family and moving into this space from, you know, having a sense of who you are that's based on where you're raised and the people who've given you their values and their belief systems and, and their expectations and then coming to know this whole other reality, which is biological, but foreign in many ways to you. Um, But you come to understand that the prayers of those people and the hopes of those people and um, the genetics of those people are imprinted on you in ways that you never would have imagined. you know, it was just an extraordinary experience. And I have to be honest, as a journalist, you know, the last story I ever expected to be telling was my own. Um, that is just not what I planned to do with my career. I went into journalism to tell other people's stories and I'm and much more comfortable to this day um, doing that than, than telling my own, but I felt it was really important to tell this story. Um, not at all because of the celebrity connection. Although, you know, let's be real in in this day and age in America, that's how you get stories published. But I knew that the pieces of it that would be most meaningful and resonate really have nothing to do with the celebrity or the fact that, you know, Nat King Cole was, was my grandfather. That is a wonderful thing. Um, But the, parts of it that resonate for everyone, whether you're adopted or not, is the fact that every family is constructed on a foundation of secrets and lies. Um, You know, there are so many things that we don't know, and we don't share with each other. Um, Usually, with the best of intentions, you know, we're trying to protect people, we're trying to honor people, we're trying to safeguard Things that we think might cause hurt or harm. Um, and so there's great value to that, but ultimately, those things fall apart usually. Um, and they do come out, the truth rises from the ashes almost always. And we have to deal with these things better um, because, you know, I, I think they do make us who we are. And it's more helpful to understand all of what we are to the degree that we can, than to go through life with these question marks or these mysteries or these, um, you know, doubts that we're not even sure where they come from or why they exist. And others around us may know, but may be afraid to um, validate or go there. And so many of them when we're Black, you know, really have to do with race and have to do with Our mixing, right, and and the fact that um, we are all mixed in some way, shape, or form, but there's trauma associated with a lot of that. Um, I was raised by Black parents and uh, told specifically that my biological parents were Black and that all of my grandparents were Black. That was a huge detail for me as a child being told I was adopted because looking physically the way I do, I was often questioned, what are you? What are you? What are you? And my answers never seemed to satisfy to this day. You know, people, what are you? And I just say black, right? I'm not the one trying to come with like a whole explanation. And people are never satisfied. No, no, really, what are you? Where are you from? Where are your parents from? No, no, where are they really from? You know, this kind of thing. And especially when you're a child, you know, that's just disconcerting, right? You have your answer. That's what you've been told. Being questioned beyond that is is a hassle, but it also causes self-doubt. And so, you know, I think being raised to believe that my biological family was Black like the family I was raised in was really helpful to me because I already had this question, right? Where did I really come from? Who am I really? It was helpful to not have the answer to my race be complicated. But of course, you know, as an adult, when all this happened, I, I also discovered that I was my biological father uh, is white.
1: Let's take a break right, right there. Because we talked about the book, we talked about your journey, but we didn't talk about the DNA test that that led us here. But there's we're about at the 20-minute mark, and the show is uh, 30 minutes. So there's one other irony that I wanted to share with our audience. Sharon, could you go ahead and post that image? I was introduced to uh, Caroline Clark through a mutual friend. And when she told me about Caroline's family story, I couldn't believe it. This is Caroline's mom on the cover of Ebony magazine in July, 1966, Carol Cole. And you can see the label was there. Nat's daughter is prominent actress. Well, the other article up in the upper right-hand corner that says how I lost 180 pounds by James McGee, that's my father. So what were the odds of her, Caroline's mom and my dad being on the cover of Ebony magazine? On the same month at the same time, so uh, we thought that was cool. Okay, Sharon, you can you can take that down. And then the then the concept of uh, DNA and your family expansion uh, hits home for me because Dr. Noel Mubira is my cousin, who I found because of this DNA program that uh, my family was on roots less travel it's actually airing today it's on nbc and then i meet a new cousin connie evans connie is on here too if anybody saw the show and i was reunited with the quaker family that was um, part of my family from at least the early 1800s and there's connie hi connie So we've adopted Connie. (laughs) now She's part of our family. And so we just really appreciate you being so candid. Now we want to have uh, time for some questions. So I'm going to go to my co-host first. I believe Dr. Norris will start with you and then we'll go with Dr.
2: Mubaira. Well, thank you again, Uh, Caroline. I cannot express how privileged I feel to just be sharing this space with you. Uh, particularly as you speak, you brought up things fall apart, secrets and lies, and belonging. I'd like for you to uh, elaborate on what belonging really means, why that is so critical. I heard you speak to this on your TED Talk, and it was eye-opening and confirming. And if you can just share your perspective on that whole sense of belonging and its essence.
1: And, and take a step back for us, Caroline. We all know how you got here, but the audience doesn't know what prompted that DNA
4: journey. Thank you both. So the DNA journey, let me just quickly say, and this is, uh, this is the aftermath of the book. Um, some years went by, and my son, for his 20th birthday, all he wanted was a DNA test. And so I gave him one and um, lo and behold, you know, a couple months went by, you know, 20 year olds, he didn't rush it, rush it in right away. So he got it done. He got the results. And within 48 hours, he had identified my biological father um, and sent an email and made contact. And any of you who has done DNA and found relatives, I know you all, um, Patty and Noelle, and, you know, it is it just your life can shift in a moment. And um, that happened again, in the case of my biological father. Um, He was, uh, he is uh, a white Jewish gentleman, Stanley Goldberg lives in California, never knew that Cookie Cole was pregnant uh, by him had no idea. She never told him. And so you know, Fifty some odd years later, uh, he gets an email from his grandson, my son, and um, as with Cookie, who I called out of the blue, he just embraced this. And you know, we know this. That's not a given. That's not a foregone conclusion. It's a hard thing to do. So I was very lucky in that respect and very grateful. Um, to your question about belonging, you know, I think this cuts to the heart of so many things having to do with race, having to do with um, genealogy, having to do with everything that we confront really um, in society, uh, at work, in our families. I mentioned that um, I felt very much a sense of belonging in the family I grew up in. Um, My parents made me feel that I was where I was destined to be, um, that I was where I was meant to be, that I was very much wanted. And um, I say this in, in my TED Talk, and, and I really feel very passionately about it. You know, belonging is not something you can give yourself, right? You can have all the self-esteem in the world. You can have all the confidence. Um, you can believe in yourself and, and have the capacity to fit in the space you're in. But belonging has to be granted to you by other people, right? Right? If you crash a party, but nobody sent you an invitation and then you walk in the door and the whole time you're there, people treat you like you just weren't supposed to be there. You can't do anything about that, right? So I think it really cuts to sort of our, our struggle as um, particularly as black people in this country is that we have never really been given that. So to whatever degree we forged it, we forged it on our own, but we still struggle to have a sense of belonging here. We didn't come here by choice to begin with. And the gates have never been fully open to us um, so that we truly feel embraced and welcome. And um, you know, genealogy doesn't necessarily automatically give you that either, right? People have doors literally slammed in their faces, have phones Slammed down on them. It's it's hard to open our hearts um, to each other, no less our homes and workplaces and you know families and so forth. But um, when we do, truly do, um, the potential rewards are are so far beyond anything I think we we can even imagine.
1: Thank you for that, and and Dr. Mubaira?
3: Thank you for that. I was actually asking, thinking of some of those same questions that you just expounded on concerning belonging and, and um, how you would adjust to your new identity. It's, it's a new sense of self. Um, and my other just aside question was how was it that you said you actually became friends with
4: uh, someone? three years older that turned out to be your sibling is that did I get that right so she I I know it's complicated so no worries it's um so my girlfriend from college turned out to be my aunt so um two months ago um I met her when I was a senior in high school looking at colleges she was already um and a student at Amherst College I was looking at Smith College which is eight miles away and our boyfriends were best friends um, at Amherst College, so we met through them, and Tim and I became friends. You know, we went off through college. After college, we remained friends. Um, she was a couple years older than me. She moved to New York eventually. I was here. She was at my wedding. She was at my graduation from um, graduate school at Columbia, and you know, we we genuinely remained very close friends. Um, at sixteen. I was a freshman in college and her boyfriend, my boyfriend and I, her sister, her twin Casey and her boyfriend, we all went to see Natalie Cole in concert in uh, Boston and their mother lived in Boston at the time. So the girls slept at her mother's home there. And I met, you know, the woman I would find 20 years later was my grandmother, wow. um, you know, didn't know it at the time, met Natalie Cole then, you know, she's my aunt, didn't know it at the time. So uh, the truth is stranger than fiction. You know, what else can you say?
1: Wow. Uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the, of the half hour. And what we'd like to do is continue this conversation with a part two, Caroline. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, just take uh, about a minute to reset And then we'll do this show open one more time and then we'll start over and we'll continue with the questions for you.
0: Join us. Send us your questions. Post your comments on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter at PattyMariaMcGee.com. We all go through life searching to discover who we really are. When we look within, we gain perspective into who we really are, who were our ancestors, those men and women upon whose shoulders we stand. Conversations on Race is a podcast that celebrates the inspirational voices of those who are on a journey towards self-discovery through dialogue, scholarly research, and education. Let's enjoy our uniqueness, make strengths of our weakness. Every episode of Conversations on Race will explore a true life story through the lens of a unique family history. Any questions about DNA, genealogy, census data, and oral history? Join us. Send us your questions, post your comments on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter at Patty Maria McGee, the inspirational voices we hear on this journey called Life. Conversations on Race with Patty Maria McGee, who we really are.
1: Okay, thank you. It's our cousin. Yes, we're cousins. So thank you everyone and for tuning in to this edition of Conversations on Race with our special guest, Caroline Clark. I'd like to thank our Girl Power crew, our sound support, our audio technician, Ms. Ron Wright, our co-host, Dr. Margaret Norris, educator and author out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Noelle Mubaira, author, speaker, and UN ambassador. Uh, our special guest, Miss Caroline Clark, is the granddaughter of the legendary. Nat King Cole, but the way she found out is probably not what you expect. So we're going to go ahead and open our discussion with Miss Caroline Clark. She was the first guest on our first edition of Conversations on Race, and now we're going to enjoy part two. Caroline, you were telling us about how, about how you first met a woman who 20 years later, you'd find out is your grandmother. Tell us more about that.
4: I met Maria Cole at her home in Boston. And um, it was beautiful home, first of all. She, she lived in an apartment um, there. And it was a larger apartment than any I had ever seen. Um, and it was really, really beautifully appointed. I, I remember... Um, spending the night there in a room that had been Timlin and Casey's when they were growing up, you know, they were twins. And there were twin beds with matching upholstery. The headboards were upholstered. The curtains were in fabric that matched. You know, everything was really very, very fine and beautiful. Maria had um, exquisite taste. But I was really struck by our meeting mainly because, well, let me just say this first of all. I was um, raised in a house with two parents who were educators, neither played an instrument um, or had particularly great voices, but loved, loved, loved music. And my father in particular just was an absolute music devotee. And Nat King Cole was one of his favorites. Now he had a lot of favorites. There was Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Donna Washington, you know, Jimmy Lunsford. There were a lot of them, but. Nat King Cole was high on the list and our house reverberated all weekend, every weekend with the stereo going nonstop. And I knew every lyric to every Nat King Cole song there was not just the ones that we all know, like unforgettable and Mona Lisa, you know, I knew them all. Um, I knew the obscure ones and due to this day. So, you know, Nat King Cole's voice literally was very, very present in my life for all of my life. Um, and so I was thrilled, you know, to meet Timolin um, at 16 and she was kind and she was lovely and, you know, meeting her mother, her sisters and so forth was, um, you know, would just made sense to me because I, you know, I felt like I knew them in a way, um, But what was interesting to me was that her mother asked, she just peppered me with questions. Where was I born? And what did my parents do? And where did I grow up? And, well, oh, that's interesting. You were born on Christmas Day. And what year was that again? And what hospital were you born in? And, you know, at 16, I just thought, wow, I'm so flattered, you know, that this woman, um, is just so interested in me, right? Because who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a 16 year old girl, you know, one of her daughter's girlfriends, but her questions were so specific and she was really interested. Um, and I would come to find out, you know, many, many years later that, um, Timeline knew I was adopted and she knew I was born on Christmas and she knew I was from New York. And I think, those pieces, you know, coupled together with maybe some similarity. I was the right age, you know, all of these things she had said to her mother, you know, I I wonder, obviously she couldn't know. Um, and I guess when her mother saw me, it piqued her interest enough that, you know, she tried to drill down on some of those things. Um, so
1: well, let's talk about your uh, background as a journalist. I mean, this is an amazing story. It, it's almost like a, a made-for-TV movie. Uh, you were a, an, a journalist and an author before you started this DNA and genealogy journey. So you uh, just wrote another book called Take a Lesson. And, and you, uh, you this book was sort of an out pouring from the work that you did at Black Enterprise. You compiled a lot of the interviews. A lot of us uh, are, would like to be authors. Um, tell us how you went from being a journalist to publishing for Black Enterprise Prize's book publishing division. And what advice do you have for Black authors and writers?
4: Well, thank you, Patty. I just love you for holding up the book. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what we all do as authors all day, we walk around with our book. Runner, right? So I love you, Patty, for doing it for me. I love you, I love you too. But, I, you know, so I have to be honest, I did not have the, the, the typical author's journey to writing a book, right? I worked at Black Enterprise, I was an editor at the magazine, a senior editor. Um, And then I grew with the company and I started our book division. Uh, We launched a book division there um, just at the beginning of the millennium. And, And really the first idea I had for a book, we did a series of 12 books and I headed the book division. So the first idea I had was for an oral history. You mentioned oral histories in the introduction to this show. I am a Enormous fan of oral histories. Um, my family and I lived in West Africa for a few years when I was a child. My father was teaching there, and um, and my and my parents were very much steeped in African traditions and this whole notion of the griot and the way our history was passed to us down through the generations. Whether we were allowed to taught to read or not, you know, we really took. Great care with our history, um, and our, our 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 tradition is an oral one. Um, and I remember reading an oral history for the first time in college, and just loving it. So I really wanted to to do that to create contemporary oral history. So the first book I wrote for my you know Black Enterprises Book Division, which I ran, so I didn't <laughs> I did not have to run a gauntlet to get published. Um, was called Take a Lesson. Um, It was today's Black Achievers on how they made it and what they learned along the way. Um, And that book was published in 2001 um, and included oral history from um, people like Johnny Cochran, who was O.J. Simpson's attorney, uh, the late great Johnny Cochran, Spike Lee, the filmmaker, uh, Kenneth Chenault, who had just been made CEO of American Express at the time, and, and a lot of people whose names you know, and then a lot of people whose names you don't know. And and I, I always have been really fascinated by, you know, the stories of the people whose names we don't know. Oftentimes, they're far more interesting than the ones of the people we do. So honestly, what happened with this book is that um, just last year, uh, there was a Black publisher once Steed wanted to republish that original book because it's now out of print, 20 years old. And I went back to the publisher to get the rights and they were like, oh, we don't want to give you the rights. I'm sorry, I think I got muted. Um, So so that was how that came along. The publisher, honestly, in the wake of Black Lives Matter, um, um, I think they looked at their roster and were like, we don't have enough black books, I mean, to be honest. And I think my, my advice to Black authors is, you know, this is a moment where people are looking to share our stories and publish our stories. And most publishers um, have been woefully neglectful of our stories and don't necessarily have access to us as writers and storytellers. And so this is a moment to sort of leverage and get yourself in there. The window's gonna close. I hate to say it, but we know that's how these things go. And so, you know, I think if you have something to put forward, uh, go for it. But you can also self publish now. There's so many roads to publishing now that you also don't have to be dependent on someone else.
1: And I didn't mean to leave out Connie or anyone else. This is general information for anybody who is interested. Uh, We're all, I think a lot of us on here are writers. Or, or have a dream to be a writer. And I think Carolyn is very inspirational because we can see through her journey, not only has she been behind the scenes in helping get books written and get authors out there, but she's done it on her own as well. So we'd like to take some questions from our participants. Uh, you can either put your question in the chat and Sharon can pick that up or um, does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask Caroline? Just raise your hand and uh, Sharon will open your mic. Come on, don't be shy. I know I know some of you. you're not
4: shy. It's always hard to be the first
1: one. <laughs> well, let, let me ask a question then um, right now, what are you doing in your career? I know you're doing the TED Talks, I know you're doing the book tour. Uh, well what is your next goal?
4: Well, my next goal is for all of us to move beyond COVID and get to a place <laughs> in the world where, um, you know, where we can move with a little bit more certainty and confidence through the world. Um, take a lesson, this new book, um, there's, there's actually been a, a tremendous amount of interest. So, so that's going well, thank God. Um, and you know, interest in postcards from Cookie continues to endure. Honestly, I I would, you mentioned sort of, um, it seems like a Postcards from Cookie seems like a natural show, movie, something. Um, And I really would like to see something like that happen. I'm not sure in what framework, but I think it's really important to illuminate um, this story and stories like it because reunion is something that is happening so much more um, and it oftentimes doesn't go well so I think um, a story that shows how well it can go even when it's still difficult um, would really resonate and and be fascinating for people and um, I, I, I shy away. I, I wrestle with the celebrity piece sometimes because I think it can draw people to you, but it can also keep people at a distance. Um, but I do think it's unique. And so it, it adds nice element. Um, I'm working on other books, um, both writing for others and my own. Um, and oral history is, is something that I continue to, to want to focus on. I think even in a video age, there is something about absorbing someone's words on a page and bringing them to life in your mind. That's very powerful. Um, And so I I do hope to be able to continue to do that.
1: Yes, you are an an inspiration. Okay, we have a couple questions. I
2: see uh, Alma has her hand raised and then Malachi. Thank you so much for sharing this story, Caroline and, and Patty, for bringing her to our group this morning. Um, I think I, my first question was, when your voice was muted, I didn't hear the rest of your story about your first publisher and what happened
4: then. So that book, uh, the original Take a Lesson book, this, this is really a second edition. Um, I led that division of black enterprise essentially and so you know I I was able to pretty much publish myself but um the book you know the book was impactful and I think that the fact that all these years later 20 years later there's another edition of it that that is also proving to be impactful says a lot about our hunger for these stories Mm -hmm. Um, it was interesting you know Spike Lee was in the first book and Malcolm Lee, we have cousins on this call. Um, the filmmaker Malcolm Lee, who made, you know, um, the best man and, and just did the Space Jam movie uh, is Spike's cousin. And so there, there are some of those pieces in this book. Um, you know, Janae Nelson, who was the rising head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, replacing Sherilyn Eiffel. She's in this book, her the woman who hired her originally when she was still in law school at UCLA, Elaine Jones, headed the LDF then. She was in the first book. So, you know, showing that sort of graduation evolution of, of us and our successes is, is an interesting footnote.
2: Oh, good for you. Yeah.
4: Are not- you still at Black Enterprise? <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you still at Black Enterprise? I left Black Enterprise after uh, 28 years. Uh, I left at the end of 2020 mm-hmm. to, to just focus on writing. Every book I'd written, I'd written, you know, while I had a full-time job, I decided to see what a book looked like if it was actually what I was <laughs> mainly doing. Um, so so right now I'm just focusing on those things.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And Malachi?
5: Greetings, um, Patty. My big sister, my beloved <laughs> big sister, uh, I am so glad to be on your podcast. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, take another step to show you how much I love you by being on your podcast, because we you. never get to see each other, it seems like, uh, especially during the pandemic. And um, uh, I apologize to everyone uh, for uh, not having my face on the screen. I am just I, I'm 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 multitasking and I look like a hot mess and I'm I'm Malika. I'm too, I'm too vain to uh, have my <laughs> face on the screen right now. Uh, but Miss Carolyn Caroline Clark, um, it is such an honor and pleasure to share space and time with you. Um, I was really fascinated by the flyer promoting this podcast because, uh, well, for a number of reasons and and particularly uh, your experience uh, with black enterprise. Uh, I view much of the world and uh, issues of race through the prism of commerce and trade. And um, I just could not resist the opportunity (laughs) <laughs> to get on here and ask you you know what was that like you know and 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 what are perhaps you know some of your thoughts on uh, you know on how uh, commerce and trade um, uh, relates to closing racial wealth gaps in America and you know uh you know how do we you know how 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 uh uh, do you think about, uh, speaking on on issues of race? Because sometimes it's, you know, it's, 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 taboo to, to talk about race when we discuss commerce and trade, because we do, I think, you know, as black people and, and, uh, uh, you know, people who, who work in the business space uh we do tend to have a you know positive you know upbeat you know type of 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 thinking you know there are some of us uh who are uh, you know a bit more um uh vocal about racism but you know how 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 do you how, do, how, how have you managed to kind of navigate through that uh, world where it's difficult to talk about race because you don't, you know, you you want to uh, promote, you know, what we're capable of. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but there's also systemic racism. Um, how have you navigated? Uh, through that or have you, have you had those, you know, experiences uh, in, in your journey at Black Enterprise? I hope that makes sense.
4: I, I, yeah, I hope I, if I, if I, if I'm not answering you, you know, just cut me off. Can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. Um, I keep getting muted for some reason, but um, thank you for the question, Malachi, And and your picture looks great, just so you know, no worries there. Um, but um, if I'm not answering you, just, just redirect me because I want to be sure I do. Um, you know, I, I think in journalism, there were very few Black role models. I didn't know any journalists. Um, and other than the Black media companies, this was in the um, early 90s um, at the time, Ebony, Ebony Jet, Black Enterprise and essence, Um, you know, there were one of us maybe in newsrooms, pick your newsroom from your local paper to large urban papers to, you know, national, um, news media. So, um, I think black enterprise was, was, a, was a real gift for me because I had in the few jobs I had before then, I was the only black person, um, offering content in a role as a, as a reporter or a writer, um, anywhere I worked. Um, and because black enterprise was specifically about black business, you know, essence was fashion and women and Ebony was lifestyle and entertainment and family and so forth, but B E was business. So we were a very, very specific niche publication. And I was blessed to be there at the time when Earl Graves, the founder, Earl Graves Sr., uh, was running the company, um, he hired me. And so his son, uh, Earl Jr., Butch Graves now runs it and has for many years. Sadly, um, Earl Graves Sr. died during COVID, not from COVID. But, um, but he really, you know, cultivated um, me and those of us who were there. Um, in the 90s, through the 90s, and then into the new millennium. And, you know, so so I was trained, you know, I was not 30 when I started there. Um, and so I was sort of raised in this mode of only focusing, sort of focusing on our progress as a people through the prism of business and our um, evolution as entrepreneurs moving into corporate America, rising in corporate America, um, you know, and and becoming mentors in that business framework and focusing on the need for us to develop generational wealth, right? And, And to me, this whole discussion around race and success and leadership in a work framework when everything at the end of the day is business, um is about cultivating generational wealth, which to me is the thing we have to be most concerned with as a people. Um, and so, you know, it has it hasn't been difficult for me because it's what I've always had to do. It was my job. Um, and so I really I think starting the book division, starting Women of Power, which is a brand I created at Black Enterprise, um that focuses on um, nurturing and celebrating Black women who um, whose ambition is to rise and lead in business. Um, all of that really was about, um, you know, sort of establishing and furthering our presence um, in these spaces um, where we... Were locked out for so long, and really, in, in the last thirty to forty years, have made tremendous inroads. Um, you know, but are still facing tremendous odds.
1: Well, I, I thank you for that, Caroline. Thank you for your questions. Um, one of the one of the most important things you mentioned, you talked about generational wealth and and building that legacy or building that bench. We have uh, Dr. Angela Williams on. Um, I'm wondering if we can unmike Dr. Williams. And uh, Dr. Williams is a, a chief of staff at the California State Capitol. He is someone who is very engaged and involved with both young people as well as California politics. He is a professor at UC Davis, and I, I believe also at, at Sacramento State University and Sacramento City College. He deals with young people every day. Um, Dr. Williams, um, are you available to say a few words?
6: Um, Yeah, I'm going to halfway whisper. Um, So, yes, everyone who's encountered Patty recognizes (laughs) that she's your personal publicist and anything you've ever done, she remembers it. (laughs) So thank you for all of that, Patty. Uh, I'm really just a fan um, uh, of your work, Carolyn. I think that uh, growing up I'm a 70s baby so our house was about you know African Americans and their struggle Black power all the rest so um, have read your work and the work of Black Enterprise and Ebony and Essence you know as foundational so first just wanted to thank you for that. Um, I, I, I have sure words and thoughts about you. Um, our struggle around generational wealth. I will say this, and then I wanna ask a question. Um, I was watching a, a YouTube video of a older gentleman, might be around my age, maybe around 50. And the conversation that he was having with people of our generation about the opportunities now um, was pretty inspiring. And I'm, I'm wondering, Carolyn, your thoughts on this. So basically, he said, if you look at all of the possibilities for wealth building, all of the possibilities, all the possibilities, okay, I think we're better now. So basically, he was saying all of the possibilities for wealth building, right? Access to capital, to buy a home, to start a business, um, um, big E, small E, entrepreneurialism on the web. Um, his sense was that this probably was the greatest time, uh, in terms of opportunity, right, for African Americans to build um, wealth. Obviously, notwithstanding the crash in 08 and the consistent, you know, and persistent, you know, housing discrimination and the like. So, um, I would be interested in, in in getting your take on that, Carolyn, and also we're a family of writers. So my wife Jocelyn is a writer as well, and so we're we're also interested in your discipline, right? Uh, tell us about how you get this done, because writing is the most you know. Sometimes you sit there, like let's say you have a, a routine in your writing, and okay, I got to do this five o'clock every day, and I want to do it. Then you get there, and there's nothing. You're like, oh my goodness. So, so I'm really always interested in tips and insights and hacks around, around writing, because that's what part of what we both do. So we'd, be, we'd love to hear your insights on that. Um,
4: thank you so much for, for being here, first of all, and, and for the questions. So, you know, I would love to be able to tell you that I got some black girl magic on the writing <laughs> discipline. Uh, I do not, I can, you know, I, I will say this, I wrote, I wrote two books while I had a full-time job right? And young children and parents and, you know, all those things. And there's an old adage, you know, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy woman. I do think, you know, there, there is something to that. The more we have to do somehow, the more we manage to get done. Um, I shut things down to write this most recent book. I was in a, um, I was in a corporate job. I had just left the E. I was in a significant corporate job. Um, it was COVID and life was strange and I left the job, um, early because the opportunity came along to write this book and they needed this book in four months. Now I had never written a book in four months and I didn't know if I could, but I knew that I could not while I had a full-time job. And I really wanted to write this book because I had written the first one. So um, so I took a header and I left that job to devote myself to this practice fully. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I couldn't do that for just one book. So I'm now working on others. Like you said, it's it's tough. Now I will say there's a writer um, whose oral history is in this book. Her name is Veronica Chambers. I am a huge fan of hers. Um, She wrote a memoir, it's a debut novel called Mama's Girl many, many years ago, and she has written 36 books since then, um, and in like 25 years. So you do the math on that. It's more than a book a year. Um, She has a child, she's married, and on and off, she has other jobs, big jobs. She now works at the New York Times. In addition to writing books, she's written Um, books under her own name and books that are not under her name. She wrote Michael Strahan's memoir. She wrote Robin Roberts' memoir. She wrote the chef Marcus Samuelson's. So she's written some very big books and some bestsellers. She told me, um, and I share her hacks because I don't really have my own, that um, she is a big believer in sitting down at the same time if she can swing it every single day and just positioning herself in front of whatever your mode of writing is. You know, Toni Morrison still wrote longhand on on pads. um, And that might be your jam too. But whatever it is, your laptop, your computer, your whatever, just literally, you said the word discipline, make a discipline out of it. Like you would in meditation, like you would prayer, like you would exercise, fill in the blank, right? And same time every day, put yourself in that seat and don't get up. Just don't get up, whether it's 30 minutes, whether it's an hour, whatever you've got. And whatever you produce in that time, you will produce something. It may not be everything you'd hope to. It may not be something you ever use, but you will produce something. And the more you do that, the more your body will sort of just kick in. Um, Shonda Rhimes is somebody I, I admire tremendously. She doesn't believe in writer's block. Hmm. She says she just doesn't believe in it. She also believes in this discipline of just doing it, just do it, do it, do it. And, you know, some of it you'll use some of it you won't, but you will be doing it. So I, you know, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but, um, I'm like you always looking for hacks because i don't I don't have them on my own. Um, so that's helpful. In terms of um, you know wealth creation and this sort of thing for for us, um, I do think the generational wealth piece, as I said before, it is so critically important and We are doing more, we are taking advantage of this moment. More of us are becoming entrepreneurs than ever before. More younger people are becoming entrepreneurs than ever before. More black women are becoming entrepreneurs than any other group. Um, And so I think we are increasingly sort of harnessing um, the courage and the will to self-actualize and not depend on other people to make it happen. But I think we need to be careful not to get into a, this is better. this lane is better than that lane. This lane works, that lane doesn't. We have to make it work in every way possible, everywhere possible. But I think we also have to do a better job of really intentionally focusing on what we already have. It may not seem like much, but it's something. And if we can preserve it and pass it on, whatever it is, as opposed to losing it, and not passing it on, you know, we, we have lost, we continue to lose an enormous amount of generational wealth in the form of property, in the form of basic, basic um, holdings that um, we lose because we do not do estate planning. We just don't, we die and we hope or think or whatever, pray that it's gonna work out and the people we love are going to get what we intended to them to get. It doesn't happen, you know, in my own family, um, you know, m- educated people who knew better, just couldn't do it, just didn't sit down and commit to paper and um, leave documents with people who would be able to carry them forth. Some did. And those who did, you know, We're able to sustain these things, but those who don't, you can have a whole lot and have it go to the government when you don't have an estate plan.
1: That is such a good point, and we are running out of time um, and I think we'll have Dr. Joaquin Wallace on to talk about that estate planning part. I think that's something that he wants to talk about yeah. and so we want to thank you so much, Caroline, for taking the time out of your busy day to speak with us today and be part of this uh, conversations on race podcast uh, Also, I want to mention uh, dr. Noel Mubira's book is called Serving Your Way to Success." And all of the books, uh, Dr. Norris's book, My Beloved Journey. Can you hold yours up, Dr. Norris? That's her launch book uh, about her journey raising three sons as a single mom. And if anyone is interested in any of these books, you can go to my website, pattymariamcgee.com, and I will get your request or your order through to the authors. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for jo- joining us today, and look forward to having you again during our next podcast episode. I'm Patty Maria McGee. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Join us. Send us your questions. Post your comments on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter at pattymariamcgee.com.